Again, let me say welcome. I'm glad you're here today. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. And as you're making your way to Ephesians chapter 2, I'll tell you, this text has to come with like a warning sticker. Uh, So what we're about to read, I'm going to read Ephesians 2, our text today. We're in a series in Ephesians called uh, Riches of Grace. And in Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read 1 through 10. But this passage today, I'm telling you, if you are halfway paying attention, uh, then you'll you'll need to be warned. Uh, I can explain to you what this this text is going to do to us if we'll listen to it. I would say it this way. Let me explain it this way. Let me set it up this way. Um, There's only two ways out of this text. There's only two ways out of this service. There's only two ways out of church today. There's only two ways you can get out of Ephesians chapter 2. So let's imagine this way. Let's imagine, come with me, uh, and we're in a tunnel. We go below street level. We've got our flashlights, and we're in a subterranean tunnel. And as we get down there, we hear the, the hatch that we came through slams behind us and locks shut. There's no way back out. I've been watching a lot of Scooby-Doo lately with my littlest kids, so there's, this is definitely coming through here. But there we are, and th- there's no way back out, right? So we can't, we can't go out the way we came. There's only one way through this sermon. There's only one way through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And we look ahead, and, it's, and we can see that at the end, the, the tunnel forks at the end to two exits. There's only two ways out. And it's not a long tunnel. It's not a long sermon. Long-ish. But at the end of this, at the end of this text, there's only two ways out. And you, and you notice, one way to exit today, one way to leave church, the exit is a little wider. And there's enough room for you and your pride to make it out. You and your pride can make it out of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It's wide. You don't have to say goodbye to your, 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 your dignity and, and, and all that. You, you can keep your pride and you can make it out. And if you do, um, and if you're listening, if you're halfway paying attention to what you're reading, you don't have to be full paying attention. You could just be halfway paying attention. You will have your pride and you will leave here today offended and angry, a little bit at me, mostly at the text, mostly at Ephesians 2. You'll leave, as my mom used to say, mad as a hornet. You'll be mad as a hornet, but you've got your pride. There's another way out. It's a little narrower. And this exit, you can't take, you can't walk out of Ephesians 2 with your pride intact. In this case, if you want out, your pride will have to be left shattered and broken. Your pride will have to be left there dead in the tunnel. And you can get out. And on this, you don't get your pride at the end of Ephesians 2. But if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to go that route, then uh, you, you don't get your pride, but you get like Malachi 4.2 says, you get to skip like a calf loosed from its stall. I would love to be a skipping cow leaving church this morning. Like a calf loosed from its stall, free to love once and for all. And when, even when I fall, I get back up for the joy that overflows my cup. Heaven's filled me with more than enough. He's broke down all my levees, called my bluffs. Let the flood wash over me. That kind of good news exit at the cost of your pride. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 has human pride in its crosshairs. I'm willing to read it if you are. But the minute I start reading this, the hatch closes. We're full Scooby-Doo in the tunnel. You with me? All right, here we go. Verse one, click. That was the hatch. Okay, okay, okay. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now maybe you get to the end of that and you're not seeing the tunnel. Maybe, maybe you read that and you go, well, that didn't seem nearly as offensive as I thought. That's because we don't, I don't think we really got our heads around maybe what, what he's saying. If you really understand what Paul's saying, this is completely offensive to human pride. Here's how I thought we could get our heads around it. And I thought of it in this phrase. I saw this advertised over and over. I saw this on commercials. Here's the phrase. Have you ever seen this phrase? Earned, never given. You ever seen that? If you were to Google earned, never given, I'll tell you where I first saw it and where I first saw it, and some of the first results you'll get from Google when you uh, uh, look this up is I saw it on recruitment uh, commercials and advertisements for the United States Marine Corps. Marines, earned, never given. And so I thought, wow, okay, that, that's pretty cool, earned, never given. So I, I texted, I, I reached out this week to my friend who has t- over two decades of active service as a, as a Marine. This guy's Marine, and I'm told, once a Marine, always a Marine. Semper Fi, right? So I reached out to him, and I said, hey, can you tell me? I'm seeing this all over the Marine Corps. What does that mean, earned, never given? His answer made perfect sense. He said it refers to the title of being called a Marine. The title of being, of being called a Marine is not something that's handed out. It's not something you, you weren't given the title Marine. You earned every bit of it. See? Earned, never given. I said, that's awesome. It makes total sense. In other words, right, and, and uh, not just Marines, but any armed services, they certainly earn the respect of a grateful nation. They certainly have my respect, and I'm not giving it. They earned it, right? It makes total sense. Earned, never given. Well, if you scroll along in Google, you'll see other places that pick this up, whether it's, you know, like a, an influencer on Instagram or something, and they're telling you about all this CrossFit and all this exciting, you know, um, uh, exercise stuff, and they say, look, if you, you've got to work for it. If you want this kind of physical uh, achievement, you've, it's, it's earned, never given. Yeah, let's run a Murph. Do a Murph. Let's Murph, whatever they do, right? Why? Because it's earned, never given. And that applies in, in really in positive, in good ways, lots of places. Their point is what? You can't just be lazy and sit around and expect somebody to hand you self-respect, No, that's earned, never given. In all these ways, I don't disagree. Totally makes sense. A couple weeks ago, didn't we see two professional football teams at the end of one made it through all the way to the AFC, one made it all the way through the NFC, and they smashed on the field because one team was going to get to raise that Vince Lombardi trophy. And that Vince Lombardi trophy is earned, never given. You know what they don't do in the NFL? Participation trophies. They're never like, here, Bengals, you tried. Right? 
No, it's earned. Never give in March. In, aren't we coming up in a big basketball tournament every year in March for college teams? One women's NCAA team and one men's NCAA team at the end of that massive tournament and all your brackets are going to be busted and you're going to be like, can't believe I didn't get them all right this year since no one ever has. Why not me? So right in at the end of that tournament, one women's team and one men's team, they're going to get to hold up that trophy and they can honestly say when they interview them, hey, were you given this trophy? No. This was earned, never given. Think about all the ways this applies perfectly in your life. And you can be proud of all these things. You, you want to you wanna crush that sales goal at work. Not, uh, companies aren't just going to give you their business. You go and you earn it through good customer service and good value and all that stuff. Right? Students, grade point average. Right? You want that GPA? Parents, you want that GPA for them? Yeah? Well, parents, they don't just hand out those grades. You've got to work. It's earned, never given. Uh, what about, uh, uh, for those of you, you go get it. You got financial goals, and we're going we're gonna to hit this net worth milestone. We're going to have, you know, all this, this money and assets, and we're going to go out, and we're going to work hard for that. That's earned, never given. Runners understand a, a PR in a 5K, a, you know, a PR stands for personal record. You want to go out and run your personal best? They're not just going to give you that. Every runner knows that's hard. It's earned, never given. Okay. In all those ways, you can be so proud of every one of those achievements, sales, GPA, everything you worked hard for. In fact, take the Marines. Go back to the Marines. The slogan I grew up with associating with the Marines earn, wasn't earned, never given. It was this, the Marines. The few, do you know it? The few, the proud. The Marines. And that, it makes total sense to me. Proud. Because you can be proud. You earned that. So does earned, never given apply to everything? Well, what do all those things have in common? Sales goals and PRs and, 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 and Vince Lombardi trophies. Well, while it's very difficult to achieve those things, it's not altogether impossible. It is humanly possible to earn those things. Very difficult, but it is possible. We've seen it happen. The other thing is, it's, if you don't get those things, you don't die. You don't cease to exist. You just didn't get the, you didn't get the, uh, you didn't get the Super Bowl trophy. Again, congratulations, you're a Bengal. The point is, you, you don't die, though. Everybody with me? You right? So does it apply to everything? Does it apply to something you need to live? Does that apply? Thought question. It's not rhetorical. Does that apply to food? It's a thoughtful question. Because on the one hand, you're like, okay, putting food on your table. You need to work hard to provide for your family. Guys, right? I mean, come on. Doesn't the Bible say if a man doesn't work, he shall not eat? So on one hand, you're like, yeah, yeah, you got to earn it. But the Bible also allows for the fact What about all those for whom life has happened to them in such a way that they're not able to go and earn a living? The Bible says we have a responsibility to care for them. So, so, I mean, okay, what what if you happen to be a person who happens to be eight months old? Does food earned never, does that work? You've got to earn these strained carrots. Food is earned, never given, Gerber. Like, right? You say, Tom, that's ridiculous. That's right. What about heaven? It's a thoughtful question. The vast majority of the world believes in God. The vast majority of the world believes there's a heaven, there's a place of paradise, and a place separated from paradise. The vast majority of the world believes that. The vast majority of the world also believes, if we were to ask them, how do you get there? Earned, never given, is the response that most religions boil down to. They just do. Whether you are a Muslim, 
Allah will take all your good deeds and weigh them on a giant scale against your bad deeds. And overall, you don't have to be perfect, but overall, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, Allah allows you into paradise. Whether you're Muslim or a Mormon, God has grace after you've done all you can do and you prove by your works you can do it, then you get in. Earned, never given. Most of the folks who aren't religious that I know, they're really good people. They're really good people. And what do they believe? If you ask them, what do you believe? What's it going to take to get right with God? What's it going to take to get into paradise? Most people would say, well, I try to be a good person. I heard one guy in New York tell me, I can sum up all the Ten Commandments. Just don't be a jerk. And if I do that, then I'll be good with God. Right? And then when you get into heaven, in a way, you can kind of celebrate. Like, I made it. You guys didn't. I always kind of knew you wouldn't, right? But me, I made it. Earned, never given. Here's the problem with that. You can keep your pride if you're an earned, never given person looking for heaven. But here's what the Bible says in Ephesians 2. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a, you ready? Gift so that no one can boast. Which means when it comes to salvation, when it comes to the single most important thing about you, when it comes to eternity in heaven, the Bible says given, never earned. How does that hit your pride? Given, never earned. Let that sink in for a minute and melt all human pride. When you hear that, you go, given, never earned. It's like, well, <laughs> wait a minute. Not, not given, sometimes earned, like some people do a little bit. No, no, no. It means if you want to get into heaven, you have to be a charity case of God. you got to be God's welfare case. Amazing grace, the hymn says, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. Most of us would prefer that say that saved, you know, a pretty good guy with, okay, some bad sins that we need to deal with. But by and large, I'm a decent dude. No, wretch like me. We don't like that. Like, in other words, what that's saying is if you want to get into heaven, you get in as a recipient of God's participation trophy when it comes to heaven. Heaven is a participation trophy. Here, you didn't deserve it. I'm just giving you the trophy. I don't want a participation trophy. I want the one that went out there and meant something that earned it. Then I'm sorry, that's the exit with the pride and there's nothing there. Well, that's not right. That's offensive. Didn't I earn something? See, I told you you'd be mad as a hornet. I want to be a participation. I like being the guy that helps other people. I don't like being the guy who needs the help. I know, I know it hurts your pride, doesn't it? But when it comes to salvation, you're the guy who needs the help. Salvation, the gospel says. And listen, this is, the, this is Christianity's unique contribution to the world. It's the only religion, it stands alone, that says salvation must be received, not achieved. Given, never earned. Salvation is received, not achieved. If you understand that, you understand the thrust of Ephesians 2. Received, not achieved. If you're still with me, if you haven't taken your, if you haven't taken your pride and said, I'm taking my pride and going home. If you're still with me, you haven't checked out, listen to how Paul builds this argument. He, he rested on two pillars of why salvation must be received, not achieved. The first pillar is the human condition. That's verses one through three. Because the human condition is such, it has to be received. The second pillar is God's compassion, and that's verses four through 10. So first we'll look at the human condition, and here's why salvation must be received, not achieved. If you're a note taker, I'll give you three aspects to the human condition. We'll go through them one at a time, so if you don't get them all down in this first go. But uh, the, according to Ephesians 2, we were dead, we were enslaved, we were condemned. We were dead, we were enslaved, 
we were condemned. We'll go through them one at a time. If you didn't get a chance to jot them all down, just give yourself three spots to write them in. The human condition first, we were dead. Verse one, Paul, <laughs> Paul doesn't beat around the bush. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Wow, okay, <laughs> it comes right out. You were dead in the trespasses in which you once walked. What, what does that mean? Uh, how can they say we were dead? We obviously weren't physically dead because for one thing he says you were walking. So you're like the walking dead. That's actually a pretty good analogy. The walking dead is a show. I've never seen it. Apparently it's a show about zombies. That's about right. Zombies are not exactly alive, not exactly dead. And that's right. Here's why. The, the, so, so in the Bible, you understand, in, in, especially in ancient Hebrew poetry, if you go back and look at Proverbs and you can read all this, the way a man or a woman, your walk is your way of life. Right? Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in. So, so, so your walk is your life. Taken as a whole, your lifestyle, your manner of living is your walk. And he's saying your walk was trespasses and sins. You were dead in the way you walked. Here's why it can be confusing. Let me just uh, get, get everybody up to speed. Some of you know this, some of you don't. When the Bible says dead or death, anywhere in the Bible, this will help you for the rest of your Bible reading, you need to know the Bible uses dead in three different ways. That's why sometimes it can be confusing because you need to know what does the Bible mean when they say dead in this particular case. Three ways. We think we use it in one way, though I think we use it more than one way. Anyway, the Bible uses it in three ways. First, sometimes in the Bible, dead can just mean dead. Like we think of it, physically dead. The cessation of life, no more life, dead. So that one's very common and we think that. The second way the Bible will sometimes use the word dead is physically alive, but spiritually separated from the source of life. So physically alive, but spiritually dead. That is, by the way, in Genesis 3, when the serpent is interacting with the man and the woman, and uh, God says, the day you eat of the, the, tr- the forbidden fruit, you'll die. Satan says, you will not surely die. You hear how tricky that is. There's a sense in which, no, you won't physically die on that day, but the day they ate of that fruit, they were separated from God. That's what Isaiah 59 says. Your sins have separated you from God. And when you are separated from the source of life, you are as good as dead. So physically alive, but spiritually dead. And then the third way the Bible talks about death is the worst of all to consider, and that's um, eternal death. So, so to be spiritually separated from God forever in hell, to be eternally cut off from God. And the Bible will call that sometimes the second death or eternal death. So three ways, dead, physical dead, dead, sp- physically alive, but spiritually separated from God, and then eternally dead or the second death. Ephesians here is talking about that second use. Physically alive, but spiritually you were dead. You were dead. How did our sins separate us? Um, uh, not, not to sort of Bible geek out on this, but trespasses and sins covers every imaginable evil. Trespasses, so to trespass means just that. Think about it. You're going on somebody else's property. Here's the boundary. You know the property. The sign says no trespassing, thou shalt not. You do the evil thing. You do the wicked thing. So trespass is a sin you commit. Sin means missing the mark. The standard is here, and you didn't, you didn't meet the standard. That's a sin of what you didn't do. So here we have a sin of commission, trespasses, and a sin of omission, sins. I I did this evil, and I also failed to do that good. Does that make sense? So all of it made you, in the end result, dead. Not sick, not damaged, not a victim, not in need of enhancement, not maladjusted, not a product of your culture. You may be all those things, but but all those things can be repaired. Dead means dead. Helpless and hopeless. 
You will, <laughs> remember that scene in John 11, the famous scene where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead? You know what's not in that scene? You never hear Lazarus like banging on the tomb like, help, <laughs> I'm dead, <laughs> right? Uh, completely, because dead man can't cry out for help, which means like even when God rescued you, it's not like you were crying out. Theoretically, when you, go, when you boil it all the way down, it's like you, you, didn't, you weren't even able to seek after God. That, that's what it means to be spiritually dead, unresponsive. So um, let me see if I can illustrate like this. Some of you love like, um, and it is powerful, you love like, like before and after transformations, whether it's on social media or it's on an infomercial or TV show. I mean, it could be anything. It is true. The before and after is a powerful marketing tool. It could be anything. You're watching TV, and it could be like car wax, and you're like, wow. You know, I had no idea. What a, what a difference. Um, uh, uh, that like, uh, hey, before I started this exercise regimen, I looked like this. Now I look like this. Or before, um, oh, I tell, you, I tell you, a company that's made a whole business out of this, there's a whole network called HGTV. Where they go in and it's like, here's the before, but through the magic of shiplap, suddenly, right, there's this after. And this like profound moment where they literally take a huge poster of what it looked like before. Are you ready to see your fixer upper? Commercial. And you, you wait through the, why do you wait through a commercial? Because that's the power of the before and after. Remember the show a couple years ago, uh, what was The Biggest Loser? Folks that were morbidly obese. They were going to die, and their doctor said, unless you do something, they go away to this program, and the, and, the, and the contestants work on it. When they are revealed to their family, it's such a staggering transformation. There's often tears. It's emotional. I remember, like, I'm watching that, eating, like, Lay's potato chips. Oh, honey, what a transformation, Right? Why is that so powerful? Because it's like before, after. There's, there is an ability to transform a human life. Here's a before and after show they'll never make. They'll never make a dead to life show. They'll never film a fixer upper or a biggest loser in a graveyard. Do you see the difference between you just needed some help. You just needed to go to church more. You just needed to kind of, you know, get your kids like more adjusted. Or you just needed to get a little dead. Helpless, hopeless. You say, could that get worse? Well, you were dead, but you were also walking. So then whose will were you following? If you're a zombie, you're driven by forces that like aren't you. you that's right. That's right. Dead and enslaved. Enslaved by who? Look at the next verse. We were dead, second part of the human condition, we were enslaved. Look at, look at where this, you were following, actually you, you were enslaved by three forces. That, that unholy trio you've heard about, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're all right here in Ephesians 2. This is who had you under their control, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they're right here. Following the course of this world. What does Paul mean by that? It means the world has a, a finely, tuned, meticulously cultivated system that you are a part of with one mission, to bring you down. And, and if you're part of the world's culture, the pro, the, what's so insidious about this, what's so tricky about this is, if you think, I'm just going to, my kids are just going to grow up and they're just going to be like baseline neutral, they're just going to be normal, or, you know, like, like, like I'm not, in terms of cultural influences, if you're not actively fighting against it, you don't realize you're part of a massive current. You're following the course of the world. That, that's what he means. You were dead in your trespasses, and you didn't even notice. You were, um, it's like you ever go to the ocean, and you're, you're having a good time, and you could have 
you are certain you were standing still. You're playing with your kids and you're throwing the ball and all that, and you're standing still. I know I was, I've had this happen. I know I'm standing still. And an hour goes by and I look up and I'm like a mile from where our stuff is. How did that happen? I was standing still. You felt like you were standing still, but you were part of a massive system, a current. Did you know right now the world is a system with a power that has one mission to drag you down, to bring you down? And if you think you're standing still, you're being... There is a certain generation and only a very specific generation that I will offer this illustration to. You alone will get it. Everyone else will be confused. For you, it is a gift. This is like being in the Millennium Falcon caught in its tractor beam and it's pulling you in. You're welcome. For the rest of us, this is like being caught in a current and it's pulling us. We think we're standing still and we're being pulled. You know, uh, actually the world of tech gives us a new way to talk about this that previously has been unavailable. And I love hearing people talk about this because it's creeping them out enough that I'm hoping it creeps them out enough that they begin to go, it feels like we're following some course that's not laid out for us. It is. And the latest buzzword you hear the algorithm. Anybody heard of the algorithm? Sounds like something out of a science fiction movie, only the fact is we're living in it. If you're not familiar with the algorithm, uh, uh, I don't know all the ins and outs, but basically, if my understanding is correct, everything you look at on social media and everything you look at, the, the web is always watching and probably listening right now. <laughs> and as the... Um, as you're looking at all that stuff, there's apparently this algorithm to keep your eyes glued to whatever you're watching. The algorithm is designed to specifically feed you whatever it is it thinks you want to be fed, keeping you in a steady stream. And people are like creeped out by that. And I'm like, good, because you know who else gets fed? <laughs> Cows to the slaughter, that's who. And the idea here, and so if you, by the way, you need to know, I'm not, hear me, I'm not against technology. But you also need to grant me this. Technology is not neutral. It's just not. According to Ephesians 2, there are powers, the world, the flesh, and the devil. He goes from the world to the devil. Look at the next part of the verse. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air was an old-timey way of talking about Satan, talking about the, the devil. The devil has a mission statement. Did you know that? Satan Incorporated. Here's our mission statement. You know how companies have mission statements? Satan's mission statement is given in John chapter 10. He has this purpose, to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he wants to do. Why? Because he hates you ultimately because he hates your maker. And because he hates God, but he is powerless to do anything against God because God made him. God is God. God's his creator. So he wants to attack the thing that God loves most, and that's you. And he wants to steal and kill and destroy. And you are under the authority of the world, and the devil, and I left out one more, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that's it. He brings up flesh next. Verse three, among whom we all once lived. Hey, I won't make a big deal about this. I'll just mention it in passing. Did you notice how the scriptures are like, you were dead, and you walked in sins, and then in verse three, he says, we all were. It's, some people think that the Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, mimic Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, where he says, those Gentiles, you guys were far from God. But we had the law, we Jews, but we sin too. Because having the law is no good if you don't do it. In the same way, Paul's saying like, hey, sin is not a Gentile problem. Sin is not a Jewish problem. It turns out sin is non-denominational. <laughs> it's a human being problem. So he says, we all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So 
Before you're saved, you're under the control of the world, you're under the control of the devil, but there's also this power of the flesh. Now, flesh, he doesn't mean body. There's nothing inherently sinful about the physical body. God made your physical body, and it's good. But, but the idea here is the fleshly thinking before you're saved, your, your carnal mind, these evil desires. Um, the best way I can think to illustrate this is like this old, this old joke, been around for years, this silly joke. Um, so Sally kicks Jimmy and pulls his hair. And the teacher says, Sally, did you let the devil get a victory over you? Did you let the devil tempt you to kick poor Jimmy and pull his hair? Sally's like, well, the devil told me to kick him, but pulling his hair was all my idea. Like, I... The idea here being that, yeah, you could say the devil did this or that, but ultimately we're led away. Our own, there's our own fleshly desires. That's what he's talking about here. You're under the, under the authority. And the more numb you are to this, the more you're in danger. We were dead, we were enslaved, and finally, we were condemned. We were dead, we were enslaved, we were condemned. Look at the rest of verse three. We were by nature children of wrath. Why by nature? Because we were in, technically we were in Adam and Eve. Somewhere trace the DNA all the way back. We were in Adam and Eve and participated in their sin. That's why we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, when I say we were condemned, we were under the active wrath of God, God's wrath actively, personally poured out. Some people have a problem with that. They think, well, how can you talk about the wrath of God? Probably they're nervous about that because they've seen humans do wrath and humans do wrath wrong. The wrath of God is not human wrath. The wrath of God is not like human anger. It's not a bad temper. God is not gonna fly off the handle at any moment. It's not spite, it's not malice, it's not hostility, it's not revenge, it's never arbitrary. Since it is the divine reaction to only one situation, evil, Therefore, it's entirely predictable. It's never subject to mood, whim, or impulse. God is never grumpy. Here's John Stott's definition of the wrath of God. God's wrath is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil. He will forever say no to evil. His settled refusal to compromise with it. He won't let a little evil in and negotiate his way back and forth. No. His response to evil is always no. And it's his resolve instead to condemn it. When you think of God's wrath that way, that it's his personal no against all evil, then that actually makes you want to praise God and thank God for his wrath because it's personal. It's not just like, look, God, God is not just like hands off. The world is bad and these bad choices are going to lead to more bad and evil. And so the impersonal forces of wrath work their way out. No, it's personal. His grace and his wrath is personal. He will personally reject, refuse, and be in continual hostility and opposition to evil. And that makes you want to praise God that like, because he's always going to react to evil in the same unchanging, uncompromising way, we can have peace. So that's it. We were, by nature, before you were saved, the Bible says you were dead, you were enslaved, and you were condemned. Hopeless, helpless. My friend A.J. Thomas is a pastor in Pennsylvania, and um, he was talking about the day his children were very little, and the day in their backyard they discovered a really large worm and I don't know if you know this. I don't know what age your kids are, but if you don't know this, just heads up. Um, if any creature in your backyard ever gets the attention of your children, it's not going to end well for that creature. Just There's only so much loving you know, that chipmunk can take uh, or whatever, right? 
So sure enough, this worm, and they're playing with it, and they're fascinated by it, and they're throwing it around, and they're making it do tricks, and one kid laughs and backs up and steps on it and kind of smears it into the driveway. And so this worm is dead as a doornail, like, like dead, like gross dead. Okay. Uh, and so one of the kids says, um, they're, they're, immediately they're all crying, and one of the kids says, it's okay, it's okay. Dad can fix it. So dad, who's a pastor in Pennsylvania, A.J. Thomas, he comes out. He's like, oh, oh, you know, dad, you fix everything. You can fix it. It was this tender moment. These kids are looking at with all this hope. He's like, oh, boy. So he's like, now, but he's a pastor, so he's having this theological thing. Like, do we hold hands and pray for, like, a miracle? God, raise the worm. It's like, like, he's like, I didn't know what to do. And so he said, I just, I thought this is a good life lesson. And he told the kids, he said, "Uh, uh, kids, Think about all that human beings can do and achieve. We put a man on the moon. He said, uh, we, got, <laughs> we got smartphones that are made of plastic and some wire and some silicone, and you can call somebody on the other side of the planet. It's absolutely amazing what a human can do. He said, but all the human power in the world, I can't make that dead worm come to life. There's no human power that can do that. And then he started getting choked up. He said it happened to be he was preparing his Easter sermon. And he said, I think I just got my Easter sermon. And he started getting choked up. And the kids were like, have already moved on. They're like, it's just a worm, Dad. <laughs> but you know why. Because when he's looking at that worm, he's thinking there's no human power on earth, no matter what we could do to make that worm live again. But what, what if we're not talking about a worm? How are you in your sins, in hostility to God, how are you any different from that worm? Hopeless and helpless. No human power can do anything about it. But God. But God. But God. This, it's like, by the way, that's like a whole Easter sermon in two words, isn't it? But God. You know, don't you? Does that not touch your heart? Think about what God has done in your life when there was no hope, when there was no way, but God. Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see what God did? It's like Paul pulls back a slingshot. You were dead. You were enslaved. You were condemned. But God, right? And in these verses, he taught, and each, did you see? Each one of those, you were dead, you were enslaved, you were condemned. Each one is undone in what God did for you when he saved you. You were dead, but now look. Look at verse five. Even when we were dead, what did he do? Made us alive together with Christ, completely by his grace. The, the worm can't be like, help me, I'm dead. The human can't be like, I'm spiritually dead. God, out of his sheer grace, grabs you and rescues you and took a dead man, a dead woman, a dead boy, a dead girl, and made him live again. Spiritually dead and made him live again. You were dead, now you're alive. What about, what about condemned? Look, look, look. By grace you've been saved. Verse six, and raised us up with him. Look. Do you realize when he saved you, you were dead, you were condemned, you were enslaved. He dealt with the dead thing. That's called rebirth. That's called being born again. That's why in John 3, it says when a person gets saved, it's like they've been born again, right? Now, what about the condemned thing? You were under the active wrath of God. 
when the sacrifice who died in your place, when the lamb, when the substitute lamb, Jesus, the son of God, the sinless one, when he stretched out his arms on that Roman cross, watch this, under the active wrath of God coming right for you, Jesus steps into your place and the wrath of God is diverted from you onto the sinless, spotless lamb of God, Jesus. And in his death, burial, and resurrection, you went from being under the wrath of God. Now, all who place their faith and trust in Jesus, all who are in Jesus, Jesus was laid in the grave and then raised to the highest place. Everyone who is in Christ, watch this, through his resurrection, you are now, not only are you not under the active wrath of God, you are gonna go to heaven and receive all the benefits of obedience as if you had lived the life Jesus lived. How would you like to, how would you like to like, be rewarded as if you had done all that Jesus had done. That's heaven. That's, that, that's what he's saying. You've gone from being condemned to being in the highest places. And don't miss this. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What is this? Seated us. So you were dead, you were condemned, and you were enslaved, which means the world, the flesh, and the devil had authority over you. But now, because of this word seated, don't miss that, circle that word seated, because of that word seated, now you have authority over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let me explain. Do you know what the word seated means? You all are seated right now. Most of the time we think that just means I'm comfortable. I'm not standing, like passive. That's not what the word seated means at all, not in the heavenly places. The, the, the way we use it in English this way is um, the, uh, every election year, the Democrats and the Republicans are fighting it out to what? To get an extra seat in the House of Representatives. Or they want a seat in the Senate. They want that Senate seat. They're fighting over, it's very contested in the swing state, and there's a Senate seat available. Well, what's the big deal about a senator's seat? Just a piece of wood. I don't even know if they get much padding. I don't know. Just a seat. You say, Tom, the point is not the seat. The point is a Senate seat means a Senate's position, a senator's position of power and authority. That's what you have in Christ. Here's why this is a big deal. Here's why I asked you to circle the word seated. Before you become a believer, the world, the flesh, and the devil has authority over you. They just do. But now, you're seated in the heavenly places. Let me illustrate like this. You know how when you're traveling way over the speed limit? Okay, that's none of you. Um, but you know how you're going down the road, and you weren't watching. I'll give you all the justification you want, but you were speeding. And then behind you, cresting a hill, the lights aren't flashing yet, but you know how like a silhouette, you see the light bar on top of the car. <sighs> you know that feeling? And it's like, it's like the lights aren't on, but you know how you can see, you can tell the silhouette when there's a light bar and now your palms are sweaty on the steering wheel and now that car's coming up behind you and you're like, oh, how am I gonna explain this to my kids? Your dad's a sinner, like what? Oh, and now you're so nervous and you just know it and you see that, right? Why? Why are you so nervous? Why are your palms sweaty? Because that, he's got authority over me. I have to do what he says. He's going to give me a ticket and I'm going to get in big trouble and I have to respect his authority. Why? Because he has legitimate authority over me. For one thing, he's got the badge. For another thing, I really was speeding. So I've, I've got guilt. I feel bad about my guilt. I'm also under his authority and all this can be translated as fear. It's just fear. My palms are sweaty. My heart's racing. How many of you have had this experience? Don't admit it. And then he gets up to you. How many of you ever had this experience? He gets up closer, 
Oh, the other thing you do is immediately slow down, proving that because I'm not speeding now, how could I have ever been speeding? I'm doing 35 and an 80, right? Like, me? I'm shocked. So you slam on the brakes, which means that person gets closer and closer. How many of you ever had that moment when as he gets closer, you realize he's like the local security guard for an apartment complex or like a mall cop? What do you do? Wave at him and hammer down. (laughs) Why? Because you may have the light bar, but you got no authority over me, mall cop. You can't pull me up. You're almost rejoicing like I got away with one, right? Right? What is it about us when we suddenly realize they've got no authority over me? Hey, for too long, Christians have seen the world, the flesh, and the devil, and their palms get sweaty, and they're scared to death, and rightfully so, because before you were rescued, the world, the flesh, and the devil hold complete sway over you. You are under their authority. You are dead. You're being carried in the currents of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But now you are seated in such a way that devil is a mall cop to a Christian. No authority. In fact, you have authority over the world, the flesh, and the devil. You no longer have to live and die for what the world says live and die for. You can be free from that algorithm. You don't have to live and die for what your flesh tells you to seek after. You have freedom in Christ. And let me tell you, that old devil no longer has power of accusation and condemnation over you because Christ has died and risen for your justification. Authority. That makes sense? At what cost, preacher? Your pride. I mean, all this is available. But you, why, if I ask why, why did he do it? Verse seven, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's got all eternity to show you off as a trophy of his grace. And you say, well, I, I, don't, I don't know about that. I don't, I don't want to be a, a charity case. I don't want it. Well, that's the only way to get in. I don't know if I can admit that. Then I don't know if you can get in, man. I, like, I got... To the sinners who are poor and needy and wrecked by the fall, this is like the best news ever. To the self-made and the self-satisfied, you will be the slowest to surrender. You'll hold on to your pride. and This is just going to make you more and more angry. But, but come on, haven't I done some good? Okay, look, you are in so much debt to God. When he saves you, there's a grace debt you can never pay back. And if you even think, yeah, I'm going to try to pay him back with a good life. Do you realize every time you do a good deed, you have to borrow more grace just to do the good deed? So even even your good deeds send you plummeting further into the (laughs) immeasurable depths of debt to God's grace. And God's okay with that arrangement. Our pride is not. But to freely admit it, to say, Lord, salvation can only be received, not achieved. Earned, never given. You will skip like a calf loosed from its stall. Four, and if I had to take the whole gospel, and if I could only sum up the gospel in just two verses, I might take these two verses. Here, do you know them? Do you have them memorized? Are they in your heart? If not, can we get these in our heart? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. You know that one? Oh, it's good news to sinners poor and needy. It's only good news to sinners poor and needy, to the self-righteous and the prideful, given, never earned. You know, we, uh, you might say it this way, there's no, uh, there's no chest thumping in heaven. You know what I mean? You get to heaven, you just, he saved me. He rescued me. 
Nobody gets to heaven going, yeah, I knew I'd get here. I am him. Like, come on. Delusional. Now, if you want your pride, there's, that's it. You're back to angry. Only wretches get in this kingdom. So Kent Hughes tells this story about how long, years ago there was this church in this town that had these mission churches, and they all got together for like one big unified service a couple times a year, and they did the, like this real high church old school thing where they had the kneeling bench. You would come and you would kneel at the communion rail, and there they would serve you the Lord's Supper kneeling at this rail. And the, uh, this judge in the town came forward and kneeled down at this rail, and wouldn't you know it, right next to him, had all different kinds of folks, right next to him, was this convict who had just gotten out of jail. The judge is the very one who had sentenced this man to jail. And they they were kneeling together receiving the Lord's Supper. The pastor happened to notice it and was walking with the judge on the way out of church. And he, uh, he said, hey, did you happen to notice who you were kneeling next to at that communion rail? And the judge said, he got a little choked up, and he said, uh, I did. What a miracle of grace. And the pastor said, I thought the same thing. I mean, to think about all that redemption and all that that man has been through, and now he is. And the judge stopped him. He said, Pastor, you completely misunderstand me. I'm not talking about him. He went to jail. And in the very rock bottom of addiction and jail time, yeah, God got his attention. And so in a way, it makes more sense that he would come to humble faith and throw himself at the mercy of God. But me, I've been raised my whole life to be a good little boy and to follow the rules and be a perfect gentleman. And I was going to split hell wide open as a Pharisee. But God found me. I'm the miracle of grace. He's right, isn't he? I'm the miracle of grace. Every blood-bought, born-again child of God in here. You're just a trophy of his grace. You're a miracle of his grace. There's no, there's no boasting in heaven. It doesn't make any sense. It's disgusting. You don't even want your pride there. You just want to celebrate in the glory and the immeasurable riches of who he is. Well, we are his workmanship, created. Isn't that a great word, created, as in recreated, as in a Genesis work, as in born again in Christ Jesus for good works. Ah, there it is. You were created for good works. You're not saved by your works, but you're saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brandon's gonna come and lead us in a time of response. Preaching about God's grace is, uh, you know, when, when he says we are his workmanship, uh, uh, the Greek word is poema. We get the word poem. It just, I like one translator says, we're his masterpiece. And I don't know about you, uh, uh, what do you think is God's like masterpiece? I, I know talking to some of you, I know what you might say. Uh, you, you love the beach. And you love to go down to the beach and look out over the gulf, especially at sunrise or at sunset. And you see the splendor and the immensity of the ocean and you just go, God's masterpiece. And you're right, but nope not his masterpiece. And so for others of you, it's the mountains. And you go to Colorado and you see the pristine Rocky Mountains and behold, before those mountains, you go, this is a masterpiece. And it is masterful, no doubt. Work of an artist, a creator, but not his masterpiece. And so others would say, I know where you're going with this. I know. We need to go over here to CRMC, to the labor and delivery floor. And when we go in that nursery and we see a newborn baby, That is God's masterpiece. Because right when he made everything else, he said it's good. But when he made humans in Genesis, he said very good. And I would say to you, you're closer. You're closer. 
You are correct. There is more of the image of God in one newborn baby at that hospital than in all of nature put together. So you're closer. But that's not his masterpiece. Not according to Ephesians 2. No, his masterpiece is when that little baby grows up and reaches a point where he or she realizes, apart from God, they're helpless and hopeless, dead in sins and trespasses. And they lay their pride down. And when they come to the end of that tunnel and that fork, they realize, I'd rather have the joy of heaven than my pride. And that kid grows up and they realize, I'm I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and they come looking for mercy and grace with nothing in their hand. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling, and God saves that sinner. Now that, a saved sinner, that is God's masterpiece because he's twice created, born and born again, made, redeemed. How? Received, never achieved, given never earned. Let that shatter your pride and walk this week in those good works. He's already prepared the good works for you. You just walk in them this week. Humble and happy to be a child of God. Let's pray. Let's thank him for his grace. God, your grace humbles us. I pray that human pride would be shattered under the preaching of the gospel. I pray, oh God, for anybody here who Maybe they're still in verses one through three in a sense. They're still dead in their sins and trespasses. They've never received the free gift of salvation. It can only be received, never achieved. So God, let today be that day. And for believers, let their pride be shattered. Oh God, make us humble and happy. Filled with joy, not filled with pride. Thank you, Lord, for what you did for us in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Would you stand to your feet for the invitation? I hope it's clear. (laughs) Salvation can only be received, not achieved. What does that do to your pride? Let that work on your pride this morning. If you need to come and kneel at the altar, you want to pray.